Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The Motor City Pride Street Festival wrapped up at Hart Plaza in Detroit this weekend, an event tracing its roots back to 1972 when the first march occurred downtown to protest homophobic laws with a call for LGBT rights and equality. Much has changed over the past 50 years, and since that first event, on this hour for Detroit Today, we'll take a look back at how gender and sexual orientation values have changed across the country and in the region. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. There may not be any cultural values that have shifted more drastically, more quickly than those surrounding gender and sexual orientation. In 2004, Americans opposed sex, uh, same-sex marriage by a margin of 60% to 31%. In 2019, that flipped to 61% of Americans supporting same-sex marriage, according to the Pew Research Center. What's more, more people now are identifying as gay or queer today also. According to Gallup, the number of people identifying as LGBTQ is up to 7.1% compared to 3.5% in 2012. This is particularly striking for young people. 10% of millennials identify this way, and 20% of Gen Zers do. Younger people are also more likely to consider gender differently, interpreting it more fluidly on a spectrum and less on a male-female binary. Well, June is Pride Month, and yesterday Detroiters celebrated the Motor City Pride Parade, which goes back to 1972. At that event, Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced the creation of an LGBTQ plus commission in the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. There have been tremendous gains for gay Americans today, including workplace protections and gay marriage. But there has been some backlash that's also come with it recently. In the 2023 legislative session alone, Republican state legislators across the country have introduced over 100 bills seeking to restrict transgender people's freedoms, rights and health care access. In 2018, that number was below 20. Why did Americans move so quickly on gay rights? What are more, why are more younger people embracing a queerer world? And what are the big challenges still facing LGBTQ members of our communities? Later in the hour, we're going to talk to Mark Irwin, the executive director of the Ruth Ellis Center, a nonprofit that supports LGBTQ youth in Highland Park. But before we get there, we want to tackle some of these questions with Michael Bronsky. He is a professor of women, gender, and sexuality, and the author of several books, including A Queer History of the United States. Professor Bronsky, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So, as we mentioned at the top here, just going through the change, and I remember seeing it myself, there has been quite a change uh, in this past 50 years of how uh, the representation, the acceptance of gay people and gay culture in America. In fact, it wasn't even true two decades ago. So, do you have any explanation for the changes that we have seen so far? Well, I think 
what you were saying before was totally correct, right? We've seen literally revolutionary changes within a few decades, which is highly unusual um, for any for any social change movement, right? If if you look at uh, radical feminism beginning in the late '60s or Black Power movements, right? They've they've not made they've made advances, but not like we've seen with the LGBTQ movement and with, LGB, L, with LGBTQ people. I think. I think it's instructive to look at this historically, right? That in fact, if we there was political organizing before Stonewall in the fifties and sixties, but you know, Stonewall Revolution and the Gay Liberation Front really started this. And it, if we think of it historically, there's a back and forth, right? In 1970, gay pride marches began. Um, in 1978, Anita Bryant started a Save Our Children campaign in Florida. Uh, which still seems to be a thorn in the side of many people, um, right? And we made advances. Uh, the AIDS epidemic happened. We had a fight back against that. And I think that as I, I think the advances happened because, on some profound level, um, LGBTQ culture, including people, right, um, offered a. This is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive, right? But off offered a sort of sane alternative to the restrictions of heterosexuality and people sort of embraced it because it represented a sort of freedom. And I think what we're seeing now in the past three months across the country, as you noted, right, is this tremendous backlash. And again, sort of counterintuitively, I think the backlash is happening because uh, we've actually won the war. We've made so many profound changes, um, and this is sort of the last stand of the uh, political and conservative and religious right. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, especially with the speed with which it happened. I look at just the Obama administration, for example, in the eight years from the beginning of his uh, administration uh, till the end when same-sex uh, marriage ends up being codified, the Supreme Court comes down with a decision. That's a very rapid change that I don't know if I've seen in any kind of cultural development in America across us. Uh, for you, uh, as a gay man um, who was doing this long before it was accepted across the country, did you ever intend in your life seeing this kind of change in our country? Actually, um, so I've actually been involved in this since 1969, right. so I, I, I'm in for the long haul, I guess. <laughs> um, right, and I'm still, I'm still going. Um, I remember a reporter asking me sometime in the 90s if I thought that same-sex marriage would ever be legal, and I said, maybe in 50 years. Mm. <laughs> I was, I was, as a historian, I was obviously completely wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think the change, and I, I think it's 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 a mixed blessing to some degree, right? I think change has, I think change happens whether you like it or not, and it happens at the speed where it is able to. Um, and this has happened incredibly quickly, right? Um, and I think it's the quickness of it, uh, in, which is embraced by many people in the LGBTQ community, of course, and their allies and their families. Right. And, you know, by people in the center to a large degree. Um, but I think it happened so quickly that um, other people across the country have not been able to wrap their heads around it very well. <laughs> yeah. um, and that has put them in a position of, of sort of cultural backlash. Um, but I, I do think, right, that, that the, notion, the very notion of this change, and also it's important to actually point out that it's not, it's not only political change, it's cultural change. So now the Disney Channel has 
by my count, about four shows that have openly queer young people characters on them, (laughs) which is amazing, just amazing. It is amazing. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, especially when you talk back about your uh, work in this uh, for such a long time, was for a lot of people who are listening right now, they might not have been on the front lines. They might not have seen the change that has happened uh, so much. I mean, they might see experience it now, but not really understand what was happening back in the 60s and 70s at the start of this movement. So uh, what are some of the big moments in gay activism history that people should know about uh, in your opinion? Sure. I think, right, I think that, and I teach, you know, I teach uh, on the college level, so I, I meet students when they come in at 18, and it's always amazing to me and they're wonderful, wonderful students. They're often they're active. Uh, they're they are activists. They're very politically oriented. They 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 do work in the community, and uh, and they're interested in queer issues. And they really have very little sense of of the complicated past. And by past, I mean fifty or sixty years. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think um, I and I, I think it's important to the people be aware of this, right? But I think when we're going back, right, looking at the earliest organizing is happening in 1950 in Los Angeles with a group called Mattachine Society, and a little bit later with a group called Daughters of Belitis, way before Stonewall, 20 years before Stonewall. Um, the Stonewall riots in 69, um, you know, which gave rise to a gay liberation movement and then a gay rights movement. Um, and, I, you know, we could go through each year, you know, certainly the Anita Bryant um Backlash to that is important to see how people protested her. Uh, the activism and the AIDS, the HIV/AIDS movement with ACT UP is really important. Um, what I find a little bit more interesting is um, how this plays out in the sort of back and forth, right? And so, when actually the first post Stonewall marches happened, they were called marches, and they were very, very political. And quickly, by the mid-70s, became sort of celebratory, mm-hmm. which is great. People should celebrate this, of course, right? But they sort of lost a little bit of their political impulse. But the minute there was backlash in the late 70s, the parades became very militant again, right? And we saw this again during the AIDS epidemic in the later 80s. Um, and we certainly saw it, you know, three years ago, I think it was three years ago, uh, with the murder of George Floyd, where gay pride parades merged with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think we'll really see it in full force this 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 month, with parades becoming far more militant mm. to combat all these... You, know, I, you had mentioned 100 laws against trans youth, but I, I believe that the record is, is, if you put in the other laws, the book banning laws and things, it's over 400 in the past six months. So that's interesting to me that you include that, again, as we're speaking with Michael Bronsky, a Harvard University professor of women, gender, and sexual studies here on Detroit Today. It's interesting that you bring that up, the book banning, for example, because there's one aspect that you could look at the movements and advancements in LGBTQ as isolated to just members of those communities. But then when you start talking about Black Lives Matter, when you start talking about protections for civil rights and things like that, I don't know if everybody would necessarily include that as part part of the same milieu, if they would say one focuses on one group versus if it's all part of a collective. How do you see that in the development and the fight for LGBTQ protections over history? Yeah, I think that that's an incredibly important point. And I think that when we look at 
the origins of the Stonewall riots, right, and we look at the really the beginning of the modern, the contemporary LGBTQ movement, um, it is, at least my historical analysis, okay. <laughs> is that it's intimately connected with the Black Power movement at the time that was that was demanding power for um, African Americans. It's directly connected to um, the origins of radical feminism in the late '60s, where women were demanding autonomy over their own bodies. Right, the there were horrendous crimes against the black community that Black Power movement was fighting about. Similar crimes are being done against L- L- LGBTQ people. So I think rather than viewing this, and I know many people do, as separate movements, I see the movements as actually feeding off of one another mm. throughout history, right? And I think that when we, in, in many ways, I was, I was so struck in that George Floyd summer, right, that actually many of the gay pride marches embraced Black Lives Matter with posters saying Black Trans Lives Matter, Gay Lives Matter, all, 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 all Black Trans Lives Matter, um, and it was really hearkening back to the origins because Stonewall would not have happened without the intensely very public political atmosphere of the late '60s, including the anti-war movement and the Black Power movement um, and 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 youth counterculture. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting, again, like you bring that up, because the question would be whether one would water down the other, complicate views, or whether there's more support if you can get everybody on board. Uh, it's a really fascinating discussion to me and interesting to hear that perspective from you in terms of history. But another thing that I think I've heard a lot about right now in terms of watering down the movement or concerns about the movement versus strengthening it is corporations and how they've taken a much larger role in supporting gay pride parades, though I'm sure some are also skeptical that they're doing it maybe for more financial gain or perhaps water down the movement as opposed to supporting it. What role do you feel companies play in supporting or restricting freedoms for LGBTQ individuals? I, again, an, an incredibly important question to ask. Um, I think that you know, when, when we look at the history of the gay pride marches, right, they begin in 1970, a year after Stonewall. By 73, there are already marches across the country that are including queer businesses like gay bars, uh, small stores that are being represented, right? Um, so the notion that this is a purely political movement, um, even by 73, is already being somewhat uh, transformed by, um, what's the word I want, by, the, by market influences, yeah. <laughs> small yeah. scale. Right. Yeah. So by the time we get to the early 90s, we see people, you know, companies, like I was thinking particularly of Absolute Vodka, is taking out ads in uh, gay male magazines for Gay Pride Month. You know, I think it's really important that, so first of all, we live in a capitalist society, so if companies think, see a way to actually make money and, along with that, do some social good, they will. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think, I know years, about a decade ago, it people noted that uh, workers at Starbucks was the largest contingent in the L.A. Gay Pride Parade. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, which is fine. They they were out and proud, and they wanted to march under Starbucks, and Starbucks was happy to have their banner there, both for commercial reasons and for political reasons. Um, 
you know, I, I don't see it so much as watering down the movement, or I think that's a possibility because um, anything that is commercial is going to have to focus on the the bottom line or the most diluted message. Um, I think that it's important for gay activists to actually understand the place that these businesses can have in the movement and hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Right. So what we saw with Target uh, backtracking a bit was obviously from pressure from conservatives doing that. Yeah, but North Face did not do that and other companies didn't do it. Right. We are speaking again with Professor Bronski, Professor Michael Bronski of Harvard University, a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies. And we want to speak with you as well. Give us a call, 313-577-1019, and let us know why you think Americans have shifted their tune on uh, gay and specifically the LGBTQ community. And are you a part of that community? Uh, what have you seen in your time in terms of the transition over the history of time in the movement? What changes have you seen? Uh, or are you someone who has changed your view on the LGBTQ uh, community through time? What has caused that change? And if you're someone who's experiencing either change, tell us your story. Give us a call. 313-577-1019. When we return on Detroit Today, we will take your calls and continue our conversation with Professor Professor Bronski. Keep it locked right here as Detroit Today continues. WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson as June is uh, Pride Month and we are celebrating Motor City Pride, which just wrapped up over the course of this past weekend. Speaking with Michael Bronski, a Harvard University professor of women and gender and sexuality studies. We're going to go to Abigail in a moment, Abigail. But before I get to you, I did want to ask you, Professor Bronski, about the shift we've seen in our general culture uh, and specifically what we see uh in in terms of all aspects of our broader culture in America, what ways do you think gay and queer culture has shifted the broader, uh, straighter culture, if you will, here in America? Right. I th- that, again, a wonderful question. I think re- a, a profound question when we're looking at not only poli- not only cultural change, but also how cultural change interacts with political change. Right. So the when I when you look at just a simple issue of issues of representation of queer people in movies or on television, uh, you know, what's happening now, whether it be RuPaul's Drag Race or characters on the Disney show, were inconceivable 30 years ago, right? When they began to come in 15, 20, 15 years ago, um, people, people by which I mean general audience, becomes more, more comfortable with gay people being visible, Right, and once they're more comfortable with that, whether it be on Will and Grace or whether it be a, a character on a on a soap opera or jokes on Saturday Night Live, right, or openly gay actors, the more comfortable they are with this visibility, the more comfortable they will be with political change that will enact that visibility into policy and into law. Yeah, 
You know, I always think about that, about interaction with people, right? I think back to, for example, integration of the military, especially Vietnam, when you think about that and what that might have done for the civil rights movement, for example, as people get more interaction with folks who just don't look like them or have different lifestyles and realize, hey, we might be a little bit more similar than I even realized or get a little bit more comfortable with that. You were about to say something? Yeah, no, I was just going to say that, that, that that's perf- certainly true when you look at Vietnam and the issue of race. Profoundly true if you look at World War II yeah. and that literally took men and women, but men in the armed services from throughout the entire country and people who had never met a Jewish person were now living with two Jewish men from Brooklyn and they were from Iowa <laughs> yeah. in a trench. <laughs> right. You know, it profound, prof- profoundly changed the notion of of America as an, as a multicultural identity versus a series of uh, congruent spaces next to one another. Right, right. We're going to go to the phones right now. Abigail in Plymouth, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Thanks. Um, so I am a feminist. I support the LGBTQ community. Um, and I just want to be very careful in how I say this because I want everybody to be safe and, you know, have rights and dignity. Um, But I think there are some people on the left side of our political uh, spectrum that have concerns similar to mine um, coming from a feminist perspective about trans issues and the biological aspects of male and female differences that exist Um, being kind of, glossed over and replaced with gender identity, which um, as far as I can tell is mostly about how you feel. And I think that that is, you know, a valid, important part of people's lives. But I also think that we all, most of us, um, except for people who have developmental sexual disorders, most of us live in a paradigm where male and female Um, mean something and they have differences and those differences shape our lives profoundly. Yeah, Abigail, Um, I know you're trying to be careful with your language, so I just want to make sure I have clarity on this. You're discussing the difference between the biological uh, differences between what we would classify generally as men and women versus the internal how I feel on the gender spectrum of uh, male and uh, female fluidity. Is that correct? Right. So things like, you know, where people go to prison and um, sports and, um, you know, locker rooms. If For people who have religious, um, you know, requirements to not be around members of the opposite sex. There are, I just think there are legitimate concerns about um, trans issues that don't come from a place of hate, that don't come from a place of you know, the the bigotry that we might see more stereotypically on the right. Yeah. But come from a place where everybody, we want everybody to be safe, including women who have dealt with sexual assault in the past and now have PTSD when they are around people, you know, in, in a shower, someone who has a penis. Right. So, I, I appreciate your uh, presentation there, Abigail. I'm only cutting you off because I want to make sure that uh, Professor Bronski has an opportunity to answer the question, because this is an area where maybe uh, the rights of one start to infringe 
potentially on the rights of others when you think about what Abigail, for example, the last example she raised that might have an impact on someone uh, who's not so familiar or has uh, some uh, concerns with that. So I want to present this question to you, uh, Professor Bronski, with the understanding you're not a biologist, but a a professor of women, gender and sexuality studies. Uh, How are values around gender changing from what you've seen? Why? And, And with these concerns popping up these days? Sure. I think, and first of all, Abigail, thank you for the question. It, it, it's a great question, and I think it's a question most people are afraid to ask because they are afraid, um, as you pointed out, it, it's difficult to phrase the question and not back yourself into a corner where you'll be attacked. So thank you for that. Uh, you know, I think that what's happening, I think if we look at this, you know, historically there have always been been issues around gender presentation and how people think about gender, right? Whether it be uh, women's, and I know this is different than what we're dealing with today, right? But, you know, women's dress, right? How women could dress during the Victorian period in America, right? Which is a question about about gender presentation, right? A very different question than what we have now. So I think what we've been seeing, and I think ironically, right, to, to a large degree, um, and I, I do I do teach history of gender and history, I do teach classes in like women's history as well as LGBTQ studies, right? Um, that the feminist movement, in some ways, uh, started this revolution about how we think about gender, um, even though they were you know the women back in '67 and the early '70s were fairly uh, clear about what they meant by sex and gender in, in a very sort of um, traditional way that we still believe today, many of us. Um, I think that that again, going back to what I said earlier, right? That change when when change happens so rapidly, um, and we uh, people's identities are tied up in it. Um, it's difficult to have clearly defined discussions because people get very defensive or people get very um, aggressive, claiming rights, and other people get very defensive about that. You know, I th- I think at least you know, I'm I'm actually a a white, uh, very male identified gay man, very cisgendered in many ways. Um, though that, that prevent people calling me names back in grade school and high school, but uh, I clearly fall into that camp. And I think that you know, as people's like gender identity changes, and we're looking at the impl- the implementation of this in policy, um, and I totally understand the anxiety of moving into fairly new territory for everybody since we've all been brought up. I don't know how old Abigail is. I'm actually 74, right? Brought up in a world in which male and female were the standard binary, right? That is a confusing conversation. I think part of these discussions have to be done um, with practical things in mind. So in terms of of bathroom discussions, you know, I think if, if we actually begin to have bathrooms that were single, single stall bathrooms, yeah. <laughs> it would solve the problem. If we begin to have shower uh, locker rooms, single stall showers, it would solve part of the problem. But I totally understand the anxiety around this. And I think that both, both sides, if we think of this as sides, have to give, um, have to have a sort of generosity yeah. 
of understanding the anxieties on both sides. Yeah, Professor Bronski, I really appreciate that uh, there. And Abigail, I do appreciate your call and uh, question, as uh, this is a place where we do try to uh, be open to having uh, good conversations about topics like these. And I want to bring in another voice here who I know has a lot of strong roots in southwest Detroit uh, and uh, community activism. We're going to Sergio Martinez here on uh, Detroit Today. Sergio, welcome to the show. What you got for us? Hi, uh, thank you for having me. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Yeah, it's my understanding, Sergio, growing up in southwest Detroit, that uh, while we've had Motor City Pride here over the course of this past weekend, you've been in on the roots and seen the development of of, uh, of, of uh, uh, gay culture and representation in southwest Detroit over your years. Can you tell us how the changes that you've seen and where that fits into uh, our celebration this June? Yeah, so I, I think it's um, it's a beautiful thing to see how we've evolved as a community uh, when it comes to um, being gay, specifically in the Southwest. Um, I do a lot of activism for undocumented immigrants and, and refugees and things like that, and we we forget that we fall under this um, this um, cloud as well. Yeah. Uh, and and throughout the years, we've just been seeing more allies and people who are, it started off with, you know, um, having an issue with two gay men holding hands or, or being in love or, or something like that, or lesbians. And now that we have had allies and we can be ourselves and gay all over the city, not just in, in, at a gay bar or at a, um, you know, gay owned place, uh, we evolved and, and it's just, uh, we are we are now trying to protect the most vulnerable amongst us, which are you know undocumented um, refugees mm. who who suffer. And uh, now we we're we're having to stick up for our our trans and non-binary um, uh, community and people. So yeah. we just keep getting larger every year and having more allies. And uh, I think that in that sense, that's that's um, a good progress of where we're going and where we should be. Yeah. I, I uh, want to bring up, I want to highlight two things that you specifically said there. One, the fact that uh, through our lifetimes, there's been a time, right, where if you were walking around holding hands uh, with somebody else of the same uh, sex, same gender, that uh, it would be, uh, you could risk uh, being uh, oppressed. You could risk having people really come against you just for that simple act and how the ability to uh, just go through that process now and do that out in the open is can be real freeing for a community. And the other aspect that you bring up, of course, is the uh, the pressure it would have the the role that allies play uh, in helping normalize that activity. But since I have you here, uh, what is something that you want think people need to know, especially from your aspect, from what you've seen uh, growing up here? What is something that you would want listeners to know most about uh, uh, protection and uh, or just something that you would like them to know most about uh, uh, Pride this month that you would want people to know uh, that you have an opportunity to tell them about? Uh, just just how far we've come as far as legislation and, and people that represent us. Uh, we have uh, fought as grassroots arc activists and, you know, we have representation in our government and uh, statewide and, you know, uh, protections under the law and um, I think that's very important, especially looking around to see what's playing out and how we're being attacked um, in most of the country. And we, and we, 
I'm just grateful to have um, a governor that actually gets us and and is doing something to protect us under the law. Yeah, Sergio. I, that didn't happen. Yeah, right, right. And I certainly appreciate that. I appreciate your insight. Thanks again for calling us here on Detroit Today. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Professor Bronski, some really uh, important things coming up there. Representation. Uh, of uh, people right here in the state Senate. We know we have an openly gay uh, uh, senator serving uh, in the state Senate. You see that more across the country. Uh, far from the days of Harvey Milk, how does representation in our governments play in the progress that you've seen over the course of your time in this movement? Right. I think I, I have two major thoughts about this, that representation is in the government um, both pu- as a public face of government, but also as people that can influence laws, is incredibly important. Um, and I think that every movement, whether it be the feminist movement or uh, race-based movements, have, have seen this, uh, have understood this, and have fought for it. I think it's as important to remember that, that politics, that these people are only in these positions because there's been an enormous amount of community organizing and grassroots organizing for decades that set up the situation where they could become representatives within the government. So we just, as a community, no matter which community we're talking about, we just can't say, oh, we have people now in the legislature, or we have a, a city council person who's a lesbian um, as being the end of the process, um, because those people could get voted out. But also, right, that they're only there because of an incredible amount of work in the grassroots, right? So... To ever, it it would be disastrous to ever forget that, yeah. because the grassroots is where the real action happens, and it it helps those people get into positions of power where they can actually uh, pass legislation or enact policies that will finesse that social change. But the social change happens from the bottom up. Right, right. Well, before I let you go, Professor Bronski, we've looked a lot at the past of the development of this movement. I'm intrigued to know from you, where do you think the focus should be moving forward? And specifically, what concerns you most regarding discrimination of LGBTQ individuals and what we should be doing moving forward? Sure. I think, right, I think, again, it goes on on the two levels, right? I think that... um, really paramount in my mind is creating a world, a country, a county, a school, a neighborhood that is safe for everybody. And I, I, I do believe that this happens more on the grassroots level um, and it has to be then enacted in larger political discourses. Um, you know, what worries me is, um, and I, I do see that this movement emanating out of Florida to some degree, but going across the country like wildfire of passing laws against trans uh, medicalization or medical help for trans children or uh, banning books or, you know, uh, policies that uh, um, ban public drag performances, which are essentially an attack on gay pride parades, which are public and have drag queens in them. Right. That we have to that we have to attack these law by law. And I think most of the laws are actually not constitutional and several have already been struck down, but that we should rally around these as a community and fight and fight the laws um, from, as I said before, the bottom up and really create safe spaces. Right. So I think that, as I said earlier in the show, right, that these these really draconian laws are, I, I think, the last gasp of, of this culture war, right. um, and that they will pass. 
this time will pass, but it is, it's not, that's not to mitigate the fact that people are being harmed by them, and we have to help the people being harmed. That's right. A lot of progress made, still a lot of work to do, and never can take it for granted. I don't take it for granted that we had you on the show, Professor Bronski, Harvard University Thank you for professor. inviting me. Thank, Thank you, you for, for inviting me. Us. When we continue on Detroit today, we're going to shift our focus a little bit more locally and talk to Mark Irwin, the executive director of the Ruth Ellis Center, as well as take your calls. A couple questions out there from callers. We're going to get into all of that uh, and you as we continue right here on Detroit Today. For news that impacts your community, music that moves your soul, and conversations that matter. W. D. E. T. Detroit's NPR station. It's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. Nick Austin here, hanging out with you, filling in for Stephen Henderson. And coming up, we're about to talk about the opportunities and challenges young LGBTQ folks are facing today right here in Southeast Michigan. Before we do that, though, we have Mo in Detroit. Mo, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I just wanted to chat about uh, what, what I see as a really um, uh, confusing and slightly disturbing trend uh, among folks. Uh, and, you know, it, it actually came up in, in one of the previous callers, and that uh, is, I, I, you know, to start, just to say trans people have existed since the beginning of time, and they'll exist until the end of time. And they have to go to the bathroom, just like everyone else has to go to the bathroom. Uh, they're not a greater threat for sexual assault. That's been well documented. It's just not statistically true. You're way more likely to be sexually assaulted going to a Catholic church than going to a bathroom or a locker room that has a trans person in it. Um, so I, I would just invite folks to really interrogate um, what, they, what they think of as progressivism or leftism if they are saying, you know, everything but for trans people. You can have all rights except be in the bathroom that you feel like um, is aligned with your gender identity. Um, that is, that, that's, and, and I, I really do want to come from a place of, of uh, accepting that last caller and not being super judgmental. But that position, I, I would in, invite them to interrogate that and realize how it sounds to trans folks that you're denying them this extremely human right of being able to go to the bathroom. Yeah, Mo, first of all, I very much appreciate your perspective there because that is important to get out there. If I were to be charitable to that last caller, I believe it, it's not so much that an actual act of aggression was going to occur or that she was worried about that. It was just more that uh, having... Um, from her, uh, you know, when you can have certain impacts, when you see someone who looks a specific way or what have you, she says that uh, it, uh, as things change, as there's a little bit of change in, in things, she's saying that it has an impact on, uh, it can have an impact on people, but not necessarily that there's an actual threat there. But it can be something that can be a little bit uh, more 
more uh, difficult, I guess, to process. And this speaks specifically to gender fluidity and that people are all around us trying to figure our way through that. But I do also appreciate that perspective. It is something where it's difficult to kind of map this groundwork as we move forward and try to be all more uh, together as a community. And one of the people who are helping do that is Mark Irwin, who's the executive director of the Ruth Ellis Center, a Highland Park nonprofit that supports LGBTQ youth. Mark, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on as well, because uh, we do want to take a look at what's happening and the things that you are doing at the Ruth Ellis Center. So before we get started on how it fits into uh, Pride this month uh, and the work that you are uh, doing, uh, for those who don't know about the Ruth Ellis Center, what do you guys do and how has your work changed over the past couple of decades? Absolutely. So um, actually, Ruth Ellis Center began back in 1999, and it was in direct response to a young person, only 15 years old, who had just come out to his family as gay, and they immediately and violently rejected him because of it. And his home became so unsafe that he ran away, was living on the streets, experiencing homelessness. And uh, this young person was courageous enough to tell his story to a couple of community leaders uh, connected to the LGBTQ community um, and, and asked for help, quite honestly. And it was these community leaders who began scanning the Detroit area for resources um, specifically to LGBTQ uh, plus young people who are experiencing homelessness and also this level of family rejection. And at that time, they found nothing available. So um, they got uh, 16 people together. It was a mix of educators, advocates, attorneys, uh, child welfare professionals. But they got together over Memorial Day weekend in 1999 and brainstormed this idea. What would it look like if we created a safe space for LGBTQ plus young people to just be themselves and to have access to basic safety net services like food and clothing and hygiene. And they decided to call it Ruth Ellis Center in honor of an extraordinary black lesbian woman who opened her heart and home in the city of Detroit um, back in the late 1930s and continued to support her community throughout her entire life. Um, and at that time, you know, they thought they were helping sort of a small segment of young people, but they didn't realize that even then this was a national crisis and up to 40% of all young people experiencing homelessness identifies LGBTQ+. Um, so over the years, we have evolved and, cha- and changed as well as an organization. So we still operate that drop-in center. What was once 500 square feet is now 10,000 square feet. Um, in addition to a drop-in center, we also have a health and wellness center that provides um, gender-affirming integrated primary and behavior health care services. We've got three housing programs that uh, range from permanent supportive housing to rapid rehousing, um, scattered sites uh, throughout the city of Detroit. We also have the Ruth Ellis Institute because we believe in working with systems of care like foster care and juvenile justice to support uh, efforts in ensuring that LGBTQ plus young people are safe and supported in all of those systems. Um, And so this has been um, a community-driven effort from the very beginning, um, but certainly we have grown to ensure that we're meeting the needs of the young people that we're serving and also to... um, have a positive impact in the environment we find ourselves. Yeah, that's very uh, interesting and important work that you're uh, doing there. And we want to get into a little bit of that, especially in getting an idea of what some of the youth that you are helping out are facing here uh, in the southeast uh, Michigan area. But before we get into that, there was a caller that came uh, that called, uh, couldn't stay on the line, but had a very good question that I think we gloss over. So I want to present it to you. Specifically, he asked, what does gender non-binary mean? 
So non-binary means that we don't um, identify as uh, male or female, right? So um, we exist um, somewhere in between. We are our own identity. Uh, we express ourselves however we uh, choose to express ourselves, and it wouldn't fit into sort of any cultural norm or standard. Yeah, and that's uh, basically a great explanation, very succinct, very simple. Uh, one of the things that also came up earlier with the caller, and I want to make sure that we get into this right now, is that there are a lot of challenges people are facing, especially, let's say, for example, young trans people, uh, which uh, the stories don't always necessarily pop up. A lot of people don't necessarily hear about the struggles, but you are seeing that in your work on the ground. So for people who might not be so familiar, what are the kinds of challenges and issues that uh, they're facing, particularly trans women of color? Imagine being a 16-year-old trans woman in high school and the kind of bullying um, that you might experience or the kind of rejection that you would experience from even teachers and administrators and how that environment would feel incredibly unsafe and how eventually maybe you decide to drop out because you can no longer handle that trauma of going to school every single day. And so now you're also facing potentially family rejection at home. And so not only are you now experiencing homelessness, but you haven't been able to obtain your high school diploma um, and you're experiencing discrimination in the workplace and housing. Um, so what happens then? And so many uh, trans people of color are often forced into commercial sex work. And we know that when they're forced into commercial sex work, the experiences that they have as it relates to violence um, is significant. And beyond that, we also know that the prevalence of HIV infection is very real. And so for trans people of color especially, um, they are vulnerable. They're a vulnerable segment of our community. And rather than targeting them with hateful um, policies, we need to be finding opportunities to support them in more meaningful ways. That is, that's just very harrowing. I just want to take a moment to let that set in uh, for a class of people, especially young people. Uh, to have that experience uh, already being uh, very vulnerable uh, kind of makes me uh, tear up a little bit. But uh, we, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Mark Ellis here on Detroit Today. But I want to bring in another voice because when you think of where people may go to in a moment – um, when they are at their lowest point, a lot of people would rely on the church. They rely on spirituality. But that's not always been a place where it's been most accepting of people uh, in the LGBTQ community. One person who is helping to make a change of that is Dr. Roland Stringfellow. He's the senior pastor of the Metro Community Church. Uh, Dr. Stringfellow, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. You know, I do want to bring you in here to this uh, conversation because I know, again, like I said, when you're going through tough times, spirituality, uh, church, religion is one place that people like to go. Uh, how does your church, what does your church do to welcome members of the LGBTQ community? One of the first things that we acknowledge is that the largest uh, opposition to the LGBT community has been religion or religious uh, folks, religious people, uh, because they are grappling with what they feel the um, their sacred text teaches about human sexuality and gender expression. What we do at the Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit, and in fact all um, MCCs, there's um, several throughout the state, is we 
first of all, help people deal with the spiritual violence that they have um, endured in other places, whether someone has used the name of God or used a particular sacred text to lamb blast them or to um, demean them, is to say, you know, that you, you need to understand that, you know, that is someone's particular interpretation of Scripture, that um, what God requires of all of us is to simply live in our spirit, in our truth, and that we are stronger and we are better people when we can be authentic and live with integrity, not to tell lies and not to live duplicitous lives. And so that's the first thing is to deal with the spiritual violence. The second is to look at various passages of Scripture that um, can help people recover and, and I feel, help build bridges for people to understand that there are passages of Scripture, and there are, uh, that can be affirming to the LGBT community. I'm not going to go into some of those right now, but uh, one of the things that we really help people to do is to say um, the key thing that um, every person who is a you know spiritual person should have is peace. That peace is one of those uh, byproducts of you know being in right relation with God. If you have that peace. You know, no one can take that away from you, and um, that, that is what we're asking people to do. Yeah. Not, not so much to even come out of the closet, per se, sure. but when you rest your head on the pillow at night, do you rest in peace? Yeah, Dr. Stringfellow, one thing, I appreciate that you acknowledge the open hostility that a lot of uh, church and religious institutions have had against uh, the community, but I just want to have, for a little bit of background, I only got about a minute, uh, can you tell a little bit about your background, because I know that's a struggle that you've had to go through, too, and you're existing in this space that can be pretty difficult. Can you sum up a little bit of your story and how you even came to open the church? So um, I'm from Indiana, and I was a, a Baptist minister for about a decade. And as I talked about not having peace, I was a minister who preached without peace because I was struggling with my own uh, sexual identity. And I got to a place where, believe it or not, in fact, I just spoke on this yesterday, uh, Romans chapter 1, which is one of the passages that get, that is used to condemn uh, LGBT individuals. As I'm reading this particular passage, I realize, like, wait a minute, this is a list of people who have no heart for God. And I know I have a heart for God. In fact, I've, you know, been very sincere to try to change my orientation. And that is when I understood from God, it's like, I created you to be just as you are, and you don't have to change to blend in or to prove it to anybody, just make peace and, you know, with, with me. I began to accept that, and that is when peace continued to really fill my heart. Right. Once I knew that God was on my side, then I could talk to my my parent, I could talk to the preacher, I could talk to the politician, and, and stand strong in my own identity. I appreciate it, Dr. Stringfellow. I'm going to have to end it there, though I do appreciate you coming on and giving us that insight because uh, I think a lot of people are out there also struggling. So I appreciate that insight. Thank you for the time. My pleasure. And uh, Mark, before I let you go, like I said, I got about 40 seconds left for people who are listening and want to uh, get involved, want to help out with what the Ruth Ellis Center has going on and make the biggest impact they can for LGBTQ youth. What recommendations, what statements would you have for them? 
The first thing I would say is talk about these issues with your friends, families, and colleagues. We cannot be silent about LGBTQ youth homelessness and these hateful policies that are, are popping up nationwide. They are harming people, and we need to be talking about it and challenging people on these topics. Secondly, go to RuthEllisCenter.org to learn about more ways you can support the specific work of the center. Mark, I really appreciate it. Mark Irwin, Executive Director of the Ruth Ellis Center, Highland Park nonprofit supporting LGBTQ youth. We'll have to have you back. Thanks for joining us on Detroit today. Thanks, Nick. That's going to do it for us. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow we will, when we will discuss uh, the uh, significant changes in different health outcomes that are happening depending on race with you.